The Old Testament lesson for today is from Joshua chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. This can be found on page 215 of your Pew Bible. In this passage, it is discovered that Achan, one of the members of the Israelite community, has disobeyed God, thereby bringing trouble on all the people. A reading from Joshua chapter 7, beginning with the first verse. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things. And the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, east of Bethel, and said to them, Go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not have all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and attack Ai. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. So about three thousand men went up there from the people, and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about thirty-six of their men, and chased them before the gate as far as Shebarim, and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening, he and the elders of Israel. And they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all, to give us into the hands of the Amorites, to destroy us? Would that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. O Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it, and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? The Lord said to Joshua, Get up. Why have you fallen on your face? May God add his blessing to the reading of his holy word. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins... God is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Those words might be familiar to you. They're often spoken at the communion table. They come from 1 John chapter 5, verse 9. I'm going to say them again in case you missed it the first time. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Today's scripture in Joshua chapter 7 illustrates that truth from the Bible and what that truth points to, especially in the New Testament. I want to remind you of where we are in the story. The people of God have finally made it all 40 years and they're wandering in the wilderness. And last week we saw that they came upon the entrance into the promised land, but there was a barrier there, the Jordan River. But they watched as God went before them. God took the first step. God took on the risk. And God crossed the Jordan River so that they could follow. If they could just remember that God is with them and God does not fail then things will work out for them. We learned that last week and that that's also true for us. We left last Sunday hearing something like, even if our faith fails, God is still with us and God does not fail. And perhaps you left 
thinking to yourself, well, then what happens if my faith does fail? How does that play out? Well, we get to see the answer to that very question in today's scripture. Verse 1 tells us the scene of how things are going. Maybe you noticed it. Joshua chapter 7, verse 1. But the people of Israel broke faith. They broke faith. What happens? God is with us. God does not fail. But what happens when we do? What was the failure of faith that the Israelites did? It tells us right here. The people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. The devoted things. Now there's a story between the Jordan River and today's story that we skip. So I'm going to quickly recap it for you. It's the fall of the city of Jericho. The people crossed over the Jordan River and they were doing a great job following God, letting God lead. God instructed them, I want you to march around the city of Jericho seven times, shouting praise to me. And when that happens on the seventh time, the walls of the city will collapse and you can take the city. But God said very specific instructions to them. He said, when you go into the city, don't touch, don't take the devoted things. What are the devoted things? They were the religious symbols from the temple. There would be a temple in the city of Jericho devoted to a pagan god, someone who's not the one true God. And the one true God said, don't take the devoted things. You're going to notice them there in the temple, but don't take them when you take the city. Why would God be so interested in that? Because he knew if they took the devoted things, the devoted to the worship of false gods, and if they brought them back into the camp of the Israelites, people might be tempted to worship other gods. So God says, don't do that. Leave the devoted things there. You may be tempted to pick them up and take them with you, but don't. But what happened? Somebody took them. Somebody grabbed them. Joshua sent, um, some, sorry, verse 1. For Achan, it says, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah. Good job reading those pronunciations, Walker. We give you a tough one. Of the tribe of Judah took some of the devoted things. And the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Achan took the devoted things. We're all going to be aching by the end of this sermon. I have to give you a little warning. This is just a really intense story today. Um, if you're new here, they're not all this intense. Come back. We'll be a little lighter on Holy Week. It's actually appropriate for this last couple of weeks of Lent to have a really serious sermon about sin. That's what this is. I give you fair warning. It's a serious sermon about sin. So Achan does the one thing God tells them not to. And things from there go from bad to worse. Pick up the story in verse 2. Joshua then sent men from Jericho to Ai. Ai would be the next city that God wanted them to take. Sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, east of Bethel, and said to them, go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not have all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go and attack Ai. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. You see what's happening here is the people were probably feeling a little confident after the taking of Jericho. They walked around the city, the walls fell. They go and they spy out Ai and they come back and they basically say this to Joshua. They basically say, we got this one. No problem. 
We saw the people of Ai. They're not that many. Let's not even send all our troops. You see, what's beginning to happen here is the people are taking matters into their own hands. They were doing a good job following God, obeying his instructions as they crossed the Jordan River. But now they're getting a little bit confident, a little cocky. And they're saying, we can handle this now, God. Thanks for your wisdom back there. We got this one. But let's see how it goes for them. Verse 4. So about 3,000 men went up from the people, and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Shebarim and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. The people come scurrying back with their tails between their legs. This isn't working out so well. When we take matters in our own hands and we stop following God's clear instruction, letting him go first, knowing he's with us and he will not fail, things start going awry. What does Joshua do in response? He cries out this cry, this prayer of lament to God. You're going to see him tearing his clothes and putting ashes on his head. These are ancient methods of showing total repentance and lament before God. Verse 6. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening. He and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. Joshua said, Alas, O Lord, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Would that we have been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. O Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? Now this prayer from Joshua is a little bit reminiscent, isn't it, of some of the prayers of the people out in the wilderness. God delivers them out of Egypt, brings them out of the wilderness, and they don't have enough food or water, and they cry out and they say, God, why did you deliver us out of Egypt at all to let us die out here? And it was a very self-absorbed, very self-focused prayer of the Israelites out in the wilderness. Joshua's prayer is similar, but it's not quite so selfish. It's focused actually on the name and the reputation and the glory of God. He says, what's going to happen to your great name, O God, in the midst of this failure, in the midst of this defeat? Your reputation is important. And so he cries out, why did you allow this to happen, O God? And God says in verse 10, get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Now we had the scripture reading end right there. And we might think that's all we knew from God's response. We might think that God was saying, chin up, Joshua. Come on, think positively. Power of positive thinking will get you through this. That's not really what's going on here. God says, get up. Why have you fallen on your face? And he tells Joshua to stand up. Not for positivity's sake, but because God's about to deal with the problem under the problem. God's about to expose and do business with Joshua and the people regarding the problem under the problem. What's the problem under the problem? Verse 11, God continues and he says, Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They've stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. 
the problem that's causing their defeat is the sin that this one man, Achan, did when they passed through Jericho. He took the devoted things. And everything starts falling apart for the people of God because of that underlying sin. So I'm going to summarize the next few verses, but a search is conducted to find out who exactly did this, who took the devoted things. Achan is produced and presented before Joshua, who begins to deal with him. We pick up the story in verse 19. Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord, God of Israel, and give praise to him. And tell me now what you've done. Do not hide it from me. Joshua's saying, confession time. Come on, Achan. We're going to bring this thing out of the darkness and into the light. Tell me what you've done. Verse 20, and Achan answered Joshua, truly, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and I took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. Achan's honest confession He cites chapter and verse, blow by blow, of exactly how it went down. I saw them. I know the Lord told me not to think about them or touch them, but they were so beautiful and shiny. And I wanted them. And I took them. And then I hid them under my tent. I just want to picture Achan here for these next few days. He's got these beautiful, shiny objects he knows he's not supposed to have. He's gotten them hidden under his tent. Can you imagine what Achan was feeling during those few days? Imagine coming over to Achan's house. Hey, Achan. How you doing? Uh, fine. Why'd you come over to my house? You know? Oh, I don't know. I just wanted to hang out, Achan. Can I come in? Uh, okay. Just don't go over there. You know? I'm imagining Achan's pretty exhausted. It's exhausting keeping sin hidden, isn't it? I saw a lot of heads nodding. You guys must know what this feels like. I told you we'd all be aching by the end of this story. You know what that feels like? We all have things, don't we, that we'd rather nobody else knows about. And it can be exhausting maintaining the cover-up. But here's Achan, and he gives this honest confession to Joshua and to God, and in front of all the people, he brings it out of the darkness and into the light. Now, this is the Old Testament. So what happens next, I'm going to lean into it. I thought about just not even reading what happens next because it's troubling. But I'm going to lean into it. I want us to feel the trouble of what happens to poor Achan and his family. Okay? After he gives this honest confession, he brings it out into the light. What happens to him? Verse 25. Joshua said, why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. This is troubling. Okay? In fact, it's so troubling, Joshua would rename that area the Valley of Accor. It says it at the end of verse 6. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Accor. The word Accor means trouble. Achan brought trouble upon the people of God, and God brought trouble. On him. He was publicly executed. 
Like I said, I was tempted not even to preach on this. But I want to lean into it. Why? Because what's troubling in the Old Testament actually leads us to the beauty and wonder of the gospel in the New Testament. God thought of this sin so seriously that he knew it required justice. He was trying to cleanse the people from their unrighteousness. So he cleansed the sinner right out of their camp. But this troubling story leads us to the truth and wonder and beauty of the gospel. The prophet Hosea actually gives us this beautiful hinge, this window, this signpost towards the New Testament. Hosea 2 verse 15. There I will give her her vineyards and I will make the valley of Accor, trouble, a door of hope. I'll make the valley of Accor, this troubling thing that happened with Achan, into a doorway of hope. How could hope possibly come out of a story like this? Public execution for a sin that was brought out into the light. Here it is. God knows all of our hidden sins. God knows what's under our tents, so to speak. All those things we try to cover up. He knows the sins that are obvious and the sins that are hidden. God also knows that in his justice, those sins require punishment. Those sins are so serious that they have to be cleansed out of our midst. God knows that actually, according to the law, the justice required for all of our sins is public execution. In his justice, he knows that, but in his mercy and in his love, he said, you know what? I'll be publicly executed for them so that they don't have to receive those stones of my wrath. And Jesus went to the cross. Imagine Achan all lined up to be executed and then suddenly somebody comes in and says, I'll stand there. I'll take his place. That's why we call it substitutionary atonement. What Jesus did for us when he went to the cross is he stood in our place to receive the righteous wrath of God. Why do you think we have the cross so big in this sanctuary? It's to remind us of the good news that he's paid the price for us, the price that we deserve for all of our sins. Hallelujah. We have a Savior. The valley of trouble becomes a doorway of hope, actually our only hope, if we're being honest. How do we respond to a message like this? Well, some of us might think, sweet, I'll just go on sinning. Somebody else pays the price. But if you think about that, you think about the price he paid, the cost that it was to him. If you really dwell on that, if you say there but by the grace of God go I, you say thank you Jesus. I'm so grateful for your sacrifice. I want to honor you now. I want to please you now. I don't want to keep those sins in my life because of what I know it costs you. And another response we might think from a story like this is you might say well I guess I'll just keep those sins hidden. I'll just keep them in the dark. I'll keep them hidden under my tent. Now, if you were Achan, if it was the Old Testament, that would make sense. I wouldn't want to bring it out into the light, knowing what happened to him. But we live in light of the gospel, the New Testament. We know that when we bring our sins out into the light, they get cleansed. Jesus deals with it. He pays the price for it. But we can have the openness and the honesty and the transparency and the vulnerability that comes from confession, bringing things out of the darkness into the light for healing. 
So if there's anybody who nodded your head a few minutes ago when I said, do you know what that's like? You can bring it out. Bring it out into the light. I want to read you again what it says in 1 John. I want to read you the whole paragraph. Let this word be an instruction to us and ministry to us. It says, This is the message we've heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. You realize God knows all those hidden sins, right? He knows. In him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What does this look like in daily practice? Well, I want to just tell you, uh, you, there is such a thing as Christian accountability, where you can confess your sins to one another. The Roman Catholics, actually, we can learn something from them. I remember when I was a hospital chaplain, I enjoyed, actually, sitting at the bedside of dying Roman Catholics because they were able to confess things. They, they, They saw me functioning as a priestly role in their lives. I remember my first day on the job as a hospital chaplain 20 years ago. This guy was confessing sins from 25 years ago in his marriage that he had never told anybody. It was therapeutic. It was healthy. He got it out there, and we brought it into the light, and we realized that Jesus forgave him even for those things. Pastor David and I have this kind of relationship where when one of us falls into temptation and sin, we tell each other about it. He comes into my office like every day confessing (laughs) sin. All the time, so I got other things to do. <laughs> but that type of fellowship is possible and it's good and it's healthy. Instead of doing a communion hymn in just a minute, we're going to go right to the communion table. I'm going to invite Pastor David up here and he's going to instruct all of us to confess to our neighbors. Just kidding. <laughs> we won't do that. But there will be an extended period of silence where we can bring things out of the darkness into the light and confess them to God. If you, ha- if you want to give verbal confession to another person, there will be prayer teams at communion. The elders are available to pray for you. The pastors are available. You can come and speak those things in confidentiality. And all we're going to do is remind you of the gospel of Jesus' forgiveness for you. So come on up, Pastor David, and lead us to the table.